Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Andrew McPhail is a Canadian visual artist. He was born in Calgary, Alberta, and studied at York University, where he received his MFA in 1987. Living in Toronto in the 1980s and 90s, his work focused primarily on drawing, often with pencil crayon on polyester film called Mylar. After moving to Hamilton in 2005, his interest shifted towards three-dimensional work and performance. His accumulative craft-oriented work configures ephemeral materials such as band-aids, Kleenex, pins, sequins, and post-it notes into large sculptures and installations, often with a performative element. He is exhibited nationally and internationally, and in 2013 was the recipient of the Canada Council International Studio in Paris. He is also co-founder with Stephen Altina of the $100 Gallery and a founding member of the Assembly in Hamilton, Ontario, and in 2021 received the City of Hamilton's Arts Award. Please help me welcome Andrew McPhail to the podcast. Hello, Andrew, and welcome. Hi, Lisa. I'm so excited to have you here. It's been quite the adventure to get to this stage. I'm excited to be here. I'm so curious about your early works on Mylar because I'm not as familiar with those. Well, when I graduated from York, my work was primarily drawing based. Mm -hmm. And I had the good fortune very early on in my career path to hook up with a commercial gallery in Toronto, which was the Robert Birch Gallery, which was then called Bergen Art. And for many years, my my drawing-based practice was shown out of his gallery, and it evolved from sort of more traditional drawing on paper into these sort of large-scale drawing installations on Mylar. And then you started to get into this newer work, which I've noticed has a lot of multiples in it. Can we talk a little bit about some of your pieces like the Band-Aids or the Kleenex work? My work's always been very, or I guess I've always been very interested in repetition in sort of the way that I work. So even when I was drawing, a lot of my drawings were based on very sort of repetitive imagery and sort of systems of imagery like strings of light bulbs or sort of plumbing things or electrical outlets and wiring configurations. My work's always been sort of interested in that repetitive patterning. One of my drawing installations was called The Drawing That Never Ends and it was just this kind of open system of plumbing and electrical wiring that just sort of interconnected on and on into infinity. I've always had a a kind of appreciation for that sort of method of working. And then now doing sort of more three-dimensional work and working with, you know, band-aids and 
pins and stuff again and especially and especially with the sequins the work itself is very open-ended and repetitive so i can spend a couple months working on one piece that's like i don't know 50,000 sequins so mm-hmm. yeah the sequence pieces are phenomenal. I've, I've got a chance to see them in person and they're all text-based. Can you talk a little bit about where the inspiration for those come from? The, the sequence pieces actually started for me when I, when I was in Paris and I was doing the residency at the Cité Internationale des Arts. And it was right after I made the Band-Aid piece and I decided that I wanted to do something more optimistic in tone and I decided to be kind of reborn and to make an image of myself as a baby. So I I started making this kind of bodysuit that was covered with pink sequins. I was working on it the whole time I was in Paris, which was four months. And then I, I took a couple more months when I returned to finish it. But eventually it was like this, this bodysuit covered in p- pink sequins. And on my 50th birthday, I shaved my head and I put on this bodysuit and I just spent the day kind of doing all the things that I usually do in a day. Like I went grocery shopping and I went to the library and I stopped in at the bank and doing all my usual activities, kind of dressed up like a newborn baby, if you can sort of picture that. I'm imagining it. Did you document it at all or did you just... Um, I had a photographer who was working with me, Jeff Tessier, and he kind of tagged along with me for part of the day and took pictures. And it was really interesting. It was an interesting um, experience for me because a lot of people kind of were making an effort not to notice how I was dressed. So at a couple of points, I was like talking with people, you know, in the grocery store or at the library and and I was you know just asking them some mundane questions like where are the lentils or you know where's this book or something and you could see they were really trying to just answer me you know like looking at my face trying not to <laughs> notice that I was wearing this crazy outfit. Did anybody ever say anything like outwardly say what is going on here? <laughs> Not, no one really kind of confronted me. I did get people kind of in the street who were sort of, you know, taking a second glance at me, but mostly people were pretty, pretty cool and just say, oh yeah, he's got all dressed in pink, pink sequins with a shaved head, whatever, it's Hamilton. You never know what you're going to see. I'm curious about your residency in Paris and what that was like, but also how does that informed your work since that time? The residency in Paris was a really amazing opportunity to be in a physical location like the where the place where the residency is. It's a, a big building with like 300 studios in it. And it's artists from all over the world who come and live there for anywhere from a few months to a couple of years and just make work. And, you know, there was like tons of opportunities to meet people from all over the place and see what they were up to. And there was lots of like open studio days where people would just open up their studios and, you know, you could just drop in on them and chat with them and see what they were doing. And it was also a really great opportunity to just to be in Europe and to be like really connected to what was going on sort of at the very kind of most like elite levels of the contemporary art world. I got the chance to go to the Venice Biennale 
and I was going to galleries all over the place and just seeing, you know, sort of all these very sort of high-end things that were going on, not just like high-end, like financially, but really the stuff that's being embraced as the very cutting edge of, of contemporary art. So it was like really just a, a super immersive experience. And how do you think that has influenced you since you've returned from that? And did you see a shift in your work afterwards? It was a really fantastic experience and it was a great kind of spectacle to see. I think my work was already kind of going off on some strange tangents on its own. So I, I don't know that it really affected it that way, but it certainly gave like permission that your work could be anything. You could go sort of in any direction and that was fine because the stuff that's going on all over the place was just crazy. Mm -hmm. In some of your work, you do have a performance aspect. Does that come naturally? Have you always been interested in the performance side of the arts? Or was that something that sort of evolved over time? I, I think I was probably, when I was younger, I was more interested in traditional mediums. And I mean, I saw performance work when I was in school, and I was aware of it. But I wouldn't say that I was particularly interested in it. But when I did the Band-Aid piece, All My Little Failures, which is a big veil made out of 70,000 Band-Aids, when I made that piece, while I was making it, I realized that I also had to wear it and that I had to wear it publicly. That was part of the making of the piece. And that's what got me interested in things that are, are more performative in my work. And I think sometimes the work just demands that, you know, it just like the work just takes you there and you have to be sort of willing to go with it. So, yeah, I wouldn't say I, I'm, you know, a performance artist, but I would say some of my work is making that sort of demand on me. Is it important that you are the performance part of the piece or have you ever made pieces where you're like somebody else can be that performance aspect for you? I always like being the performer because I often learn things from performing in my pieces that help the work. But it's also interesting when I have other people do the performance because often their experience will be very different or it can be very similar and very affirming. So it's interesting to see other people sort of take your work and run with it. Yeah, that must be interesting. It almost must be like the work is living, breathing, and you're watching it do its performance. Yeah, and I would say I'm not a natural performer either, so sometimes it's better if someone else does it. I'm pretty shy. I don't know if I could do the performance side. That'd be a big stretch for me artistically, that's for sure. In your sequence pieces, you use text, but you also do a photographic piece. It, it seems to be primarily online. What's your interest in words and text? Again, I've always been kind of interested in text and in the sequin pieces, particularly in words that are sort of not like really definite words in language, like things like when someone says duh or a or like, you know, yuck or something like those words that have sort of a really kind of like everyone knows what they mean, but they're not really sort of nailed down. Mm -hmm. So words that are a little bit ambiguous in, in language. 
<laughs> and then also, the, I think the other thing you were alluding to there was my Instagram feed, which is yeah. which is mostly just documenting words that I see in the sort of urban environment. I walk a lot. I'm a big walker. Mm -hmm. And so I'm often out with my device or my camera. And I find the city sort of speaks to me, you know, the built environment speaks to me in a very direct way in terms of graffiti and signage and all the sort of instances where texts are sort of springing up in the environment. And I just find that really fascinating and interesting. I find it interesting. Sometimes you'll post something and I'll be like, huh, that's really really profound like how did you ever find that <laughs> <laughs> just walking around just walking around that's incredible because <laughs> I I think I pay attention to the world but I don't think I see text in the same way around me a lot of the text in the urban environment is very kind of ephemeral like it'll be there and then the next day it'll be gone you know whether it's signage that is just up for something specific or some specific event or graffiti, you know, which tends to be erased very quickly by municipal authorities. So a lot of that stuff in the urban environment, there's a like very high turnover of it. Is that what draws you to it? Is it the fact that it comes and it goes really quickly? That's partly it. I mean, because it's like always refreshing itself. It's uh, mm -hmm. like you always feel like, you know, there's something just around the corner that wasn't there yesterday. And if you walk around with your eyes open, it'll jump out at you. Mm -hmm. It makes walking really exciting. Yeah, that would be very interesting. You're also involved with different arts organizations. You've been founding members. Can you speak to how community is important to you as an artist? Sure. I think you're talking there about $100 Gallery, which yeah. Stephen Altina co-founded back in, I think it was in 2015. And that came about as a kind of long-running joke because we wanted to start a gallery that had the same kind of ethos as a dollar store because we live in Hamilton where there's lots of dollar stores and so we wanted to start a gallery that had like a really low but very firm price point and we decided that $100 was a good sort of entry-level price for people and that people could buy things impulsively for $100 and still you know, get a really satisfying piece of art. So we started that up and people really got into it and we ran it for a couple of years and, and did fairly well. And when we decided to close that, we didn't want the gallery to sort of just end. So we were able to um, team up with a bunch of other local artists and start the Assembly Gallery, which is an artist cooperative, which we ran out of the same space for a couple of years and has now moved on to a, a different space. The whole point of those places was that we were interested in making opportunities for ourselves and for other artists because we were kind of tired of just waiting for other people to grant us opportunities. You get to a point where you're like, okay, I just can't beg for another show somewhere. I'm just tired of asking people's permission. So we just thought we're going to make our own opportunities and just go with it. And how is that concept received by the arts community, but also the larger community as a whole? I think it was received really well. I think it's really gratifying now when I'm, you know, if I'm on a committee or something and I'm looking through people's um, CVs and I see, oh, look, $100 gallery, $100 gallery, you know. <laughs> and I think, wow, we created all this space and, and opportunity for people. 
And that was a really good feeling. And it was also a really great opportunity for us to just show our own work. And we didn't have any qualms about that. So, yeah. Now you've said you've sat on committees and stuff like that. So you're obviously you're still involved with the community, both as a practicing artist, but what other kind of roles do you take on? I'm not doing as much right now just because of COVID and stuff, but I've been on like programming committees and I've been on grant committees and stuff. So, you know, sort of sitting at tables and talking with people a lot, which I'm not a huge fan of. So currently, what kind of things are you working on in your own practice Um, and how has COVID impacted you? Well, like everyone, COVID's been kind of a drag. I've had a couple of things that were postponed or sort of pushed aside that were kind of irksome. But I've also had a, I had a quite an uptick in sales last year. I think people were squandering their serve money on art, which was really interesting. I probably had one of my best uh, sales years last year ever. So that was really strange. But yeah. I'm still working on the sequin pieces and because it's kind of an open-ended thing it can just go on and on like whenever I get fascinated by a word it can just carry me further and and some of the pieces are quite large so it takes me you know a few months to do them and then I also do very small pieces which I can sort of crank out quite quickly but I can sort of run with that for quite a while I think and then I've got a couple of other kind of side projects that I'm working on that are more in the sort of performance or 3D sculpture vein that are just kind of percolating away in the studio right now. So So with your pieces that are the sequins, I'm thinking about process. Before you decided to do this, had you ever sewn or what was your background that you gravitated to something so meticulous? No, no sewing involved. No, I can barely even hem a pair of jeans. Like that's how sad my sewing skills are. And I actually thought when I was in Paris, I thought it would be fun to go to one of the big couture ateliers and have a lesson on how to sew sequins onto things. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, oh, that's getting too, like, I don't want to get too, um, you know, professional about it. So Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of stab away at it in my own sort of unprofessional way I'm sure if people who really sew like look at the work they'll be appalled (laughs) they'll be like oh my god this guy has no idea what he's doing and when you look at the backs of the pieces they're all they're all full of like tangles and knots and you know I'm sure it's just a it's a sewing horror story so that must be as interesting to look at as anything else though it is kind of interesting but in a sort of probably in a sort of distressing way, especially if you're involved in sewing at all. Like I, I have a funny story because my partner's mother, once I gave her a, a cross stitch as a present to do like one of those little cross stitch kits, yeah. you know, and a couple months later, she gave it back to me. And when I looked at it, I could not tell the front from the back. Like oh, both God. sides were so, like they looked the same. And I was like, wow, that's sewing. That's that's what sewing is supposed to look like. <laughs> My work does not look like that at all. So, but that's okay. I thought you had some sort of training in how to sew the sequence. So yeah, sparkly mm-hmm. things hide a lot of errors. So, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm not in it to be a professional craft person. Like mm-hmm. that's not the point. Like the point is just acquiring enough skill to make the work and to sort of express what I'm after. And 
I don't know, I, there's a kind of, I have a kind of affection for that sort of like dumb, dumb sort of work. What do you see next? Do you have a vision of where you want to go with some of this? Or are you just letting the work sort of tell you each stage? Oh, the work, the work makes its demands. The work makes its demands. I'm just starting a new thing of work that I can't really talk about yet because it's still really, you know, it's like in its baby Infancy. It's, it's, it's in the womb. I can't go there yet, but I am just starting something brand new that does involve sequence as well, but it's. I'm yeah. always curious about artist process. How do you start from idea to developing it, to working on it? Are you somebody who uses a sketchbook? Do you keep notes? Is it photographs? I'm, I'm a pretty slow, I think I have a pretty long gestation period with work, like a, the Band-Aid work I was thinking about for a long time before I started actually making it. And this new work too is kind of been percolating away for quite a while. And it kind of was triggered by an incident that happened over a decade ago that has sort of just recently been sort of like has come to the forefront for me in Mm -hmm. terms of what it means to me. So yeah, it it kind of hangs around in the back of your head for a long time. And then all of a sudden it just just jumps into the clear and it's like, oh, okay, I'm Mm -hmm. gonna make that. And do you go straight into making it then? Is that your process? I usually do like some small versions of something. Like I'll start kind of messing around with the material and I'll do some, some smaller, kind of not maquettes but like just smaller more sort of trial trial versions so Mm -hmm. like when the band-aid piece when I started doing that I started making just little kind of band-aid balls and little kind of misshapen little things I don't even know what to call them little like they were like little turds made Mm -hmm. of band-aids and then it just kind of got bigger and as I sort of learned how the material wanted to be worked, that's how it sort of came into its final form, if that makes sense. Like you sort of, you know, you get acquainted with the material and the material sort of tells you what it wants. It's almost like a materiality. You're responding to the the tactility of your materials. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, while you're doing that, you're thinking about the thing that you want to arrive at and when those two things kind of come together, that's where you go. And, and the materials teach you things. Like when I was doing the post-it note piece, which was called Grudge, what I did was I covered the interior walls of this gallery in post-it notes, like really closely covered. And they made this weird kind of beautiful surface. And then because of the inferior glue on the ones that I was using, they would slowly start to drop off the wall. So Mm. you got this funny, almost kind of autumnal environment where like the post-it notes were sort of falling like leaves. And it became this piece about memory and how like forgetting things, you know, and the the, the notes falling off the wall were like little pieces of memory falling away. And, And it was really unexpected for me because I hadn't known about the glue factor. And it was also really beautiful in terms of the material just going in its own direction. Mm-hmm. And was that the only time you used the post-it notes or had you done other pieces? Again, I had done other smaller versions of that to sort of 
try and, you know, get a handle on the material. So that was sort of where that led me. If you were to sit down with a group of younger artists, what kind of advice would you give them for their own practices? Oh boy, get a really good day job that you enjoy and just try and follow your, you know, follow your thing. For me, I, I think my work is is mostly a sort of conversation with myself. So it's just me like thinking out loud or thinking to myself. And I don't know, I don't want to have some big agenda or anything about it. I, I just want to sort of be able to follow it and follow the materials and follow my own sort of process. So yeah, I would say have a really great day job and then just follow your bliss. Mm, that's a good one. I like that. Follow your bliss. So Andrew, as I wrap up the podcast with my guests, most often I ask them to recommend a book that they think other artists should read. But more recently, I've been also asking if that doesn't speak to you to talk about an artist who you think other artists should be looking at in their work. Okay, well, I don't really have a book that I can recommend. I'm not a big reader about like art I don't read a lot about art stuff. I, I read more like artist biographies and stuff. That's what I find interesting. Just sort of how people, you know, just get through their day or, or get to different places in their lives or whatever. So artist biographies are always really interesting. It depends whose work you enjoy. I think, you know, there's no right way or wrong way to do it. Or there's no, you know, there's no person who can tell you exactly what to do. So you just have to sort of hunt around and and see what strikes you. So I don't think I can really recommend any particular book. Is is there an artist that you think other artists should be looking at? There's just so many artists. And that was one of the things that I really saw when I was in Paris. There was so much amazing, amazing work going on. It was mind boggling. And just, I would just say, you know, be curious and be out there looking at stuff because people enjoy different kinds of work and different artists will lead you down different paths. So I don't know that there's any one person that I could recommend, but just, you know, look at as much work as you can. Mm, That's great advice. Thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking time this evening. Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.